Welcome to the third season of Murder and 20 Podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Reno, Nevada is known as the biggest little city in the world for its casinos and tourism. In the 1930s, Nevada legalized gambling and fast-tracked divorces. Today, it is a bustling city with over a quarter million residents. But in the 1960s, when Diana was growing up, it only had around 50,000. She grew up in a middle-class family and married soon after high school, but it didn't last long and they divorced. Single and all alone, she was dancing to make ends meet. That's when Roy Saunders spotted her. Roy was seven years older than Diana and recently divorced. He was attending school in California and visiting Reno. Back in California, he couldn't get Diana off his mind. They began dating, and he made frequent trips to see her. Once Roy finished school, the couple got married. They relocated to the East Coast in Boston, Massachusetts, so that Roy could be near his son, Derek. Roy got a good job working for the transit system, and in 1996, Diane and Roy had a daughter. Four years later, they had a second one. Derek got along well with Diana and enjoyed having two younger half-sisters. After the girls were born, Diana wanted to move to a more rural area, an area that wasn't as busy as Boston. The couple found the ideal location just across the state line in Dover, New Hampshire. Diana stayed home with the girls while Roy commuted to Boston for work. TV Snap described how the couple quickly settled into the community. They met their neighbors, including David King, his longtime girlfriend, and their three children. The two families were soon spending time at each other's home, sharing barbecues and laughs. David was a contractor and a handyman. He looked the part with a husky frame, short dark hair with a beard and mustache. And when Diana decided she wanted renovations done to their new home, she hired David. But over time, the renovations dragged on and never seemed to finish. The townspeople noticed and began gossiping, wondering if something more was going on. And they weren't the only ones. David's girlfriend called Roy and told him she was convinced David and Diana were having an affair. But Roy didn't believe it. He was confident in his eight-year marriage. But then Roy started to look at things a little differently, and doubt began to seep in. After a few weeks, he confronted Diana, and to his surprise, she didn't deny it. She not only admitted that she'd been sleeping with David, but they'd fallen in love. 
Roy was devastated. He and Diana divorced, and he moved back to Boston to be closer to work. The girls continued to live with Diana, and Roy made sure to spend time with them. Derek also continued to see his sisters. Now 20, he became like a second father to them. A year later, David left his girlfriend. He and Diana bought a house and moved in together. The house was large and old. It needed a lot of work, and David was just the person who could transform it. Meanwhile, Derek was working for an insulation company when he and his friend Scott Mazzone needed a place to stay. Diana offered them the basement until they got back on their feet, and the two stayed for a few months. Diana got her real estate license, and it turned out she was a natural at it. Dr. Meredith, a retired chiropractor who just lost his wife, was looking at selling a property and contacted numerous real estate agents. They suggested a price, but when he talked to Diana, she convinced him she could get more, and she did. Perhaps it was being on his own that he appreciated Diana's help. Over time, the two became close, and he began to see her like a daughter. Diana was doing so well in real estate that in 2007, she quit her job to start a company with David. They called it T&D Construction and planned to flip houses. David would use his talents for renovating, and she would sell them. Being in business together, the couple took out life insurance policies for $500,000 each, with one another as the beneficiary. But Diana soon realized they needed capital, money to renovate the house and support them while doing it. And she turned to Dr. Meredith. She told him about her and David's plan to purchase a home, renovate it, and that she had a buyer lined up and promised the doctor a share of the profits. Trusting his new friend, the doctor took out a reverse mortgage on another property he owned and invested $440,000 in a joint bank account with Diana. Diana and David had future plans to move to Texas, but with all those zeros in the bank account staring back at her, Diana couldn't resist spending it. She began transferring money to multiple accounts so it couldn't be traced. As soon as the money landed in the new account, Diana went on a shopping spree. She didn't use the money to buy things for the renovation. Rather, she bought herself clothes, jewelry, went to restaurants, and used it to pay their mortgage and buy a house in Texas. By December, she had drained the doctor's bank account. David had no idea what she had done. But then, Diana panicked. What would she do when he did find out? In January 2008, she thought about the life insurance policies they'd taken out and decided that was her way out. She contacted her ex-husband Roy and told him David was abusing their daughters and she wanted him killed 
and needed his help to find someone. Blinded by rage at the thought of David hurting his girls, he agreed to help Diana. But what Roy didn't know is that David had never abused the girls, never hurt a hair on their head, never said anything mean to them. It was Diana's way of manipulating Roy into getting what she wanted. Diana gave Roy $8,000 to find someone to carry out the hit. Roy turned to his son Derek to help him find a hitman. Diana convinced her stepson that it had to be done to save the girls from Derek. Derek turned to his friend, 35-year-old Scott, who was always needing money. One evening, Diana and David were having an argument when things got heated. David threw a glass at Diana and she dialed 911. Police arrested David and he spent a night in jail. He was charged with criminal mischief, pled guilty, and was ordered to attend domestic counseling sessions. For months, the murder plot was put on hold. Then in July, David somehow found out about Diana's spending and threatened to turn her in to the authorities. Meanwhile, Dr. Meredith discovered the money that he'd invested was gone. He hired a lawyer, and the two showed up unannounced to Diana's house. He demanded the money be returned. She was quick on her feet and gave him an explanation. Diana knew no amount of time was going to replace the money she'd stole. It was now time to carry out her plan. So she called the insurance company to confirm David's policy was still valid. On Thursday, August 28th, Diana talked with Derek and Scott and told them it would happen at 5 p.m. the next day. On Friday, Diana's girls went to Roy's to spend the weekend with their dad. Diana and David made plans that evening to stay at home and watch movies. That afternoon, Diana called Roy and confirmed the time. Roy then called Derek to tell him when David would be alone. At 5 p.m., Diana left David and went to get groceries and rent a few movies. Court records revealed that a half hour later, David walked outside and asked to borrow a garden hose from his neighbor, then returned inside the home. Derek and Scott traveled from Newbury, where they were living, an hour to Dover. Crossing the border at the Hampton Toll booth, Scott's license plate on his green Jeep was recorded. They drove down a trail in a wooded area that ran behind Diana and David's house and parked. Just then, a neighbor happened to glance over and noticed the vehicle. Derek and Scott walked down the trail, through the trees, and into Diana and David's backyard. Scott had come prepared with a rifle. The men let themselves in the sliding back door. Derek called out to David 
and he answered that he was in the basement. Derek headed down the steps first, with Scott close behind. David didn't suspect a thing and asked them what they were doing stopping by. Before Derek could answer, Scott raised the rifle and shot David in the left temple. Derek swooped in and picked up the spent round and put it in his pocket. Scott needed to make sure David was dead. He took out a knife and sliced his throat. It was just after 6 p.m. Derek and Scott left through the back door and walked through the backyard. Another neighbor spotted the two men, and although he couldn't see their faces, he thought he recognized the shorter man as Derek. Then Derek and Scott stopped at Roy's to pick up the money, and Roy was shocked to learn that they'd carried out the murder themselves. At 7.12 p.m., Diana returned home, and just like she'd planned, checked the basement to confirm David was dead. She returned upstairs and dialed 911. Hysterical, she wailed into the phone that David had fallen. The dispatcher directed her to perform CPR. The first officer to arrive at the house recognized Diana. She was wailing and in hysterics. The officer tried to calm her down. Paramedics arrived soon after to find David laying in a large pool of blood. The officer pulled Diana away. Within minutes, they advised the officer that this was a homicide. Diana was taken to the station interviewed. She was sobbing and distraught. Officers wondered if this had anything to do with the earlier incident in July. But Diana reassured them that their relationship was solid. At one point when they left her alone in the room, she was heard whispering, What am I going to do without you? Diana was allowed to return home. Police confirmed with the grocery store that Diana had been there when David was killed. They canvassed the neighborhood and spoke with neighbors and learned about the sighting of Derek and the green jeep. They traced the jeep to Scott and discovered that it had gone through the toll booth into Dover that night. They ran a check on Derek's cell phone records and saw that it had traveled to Dover. Investigators contacted police in Newberry and found Derek had an outstanding warrant for a traffic fine. They traveled to the Newberry police station to interview Derek, but to his surprise, they didn't ask about the traffic violation. Rather, they confronted him with the evidence. Derek denied knowing anything. Investigators kept the pressure on and poked holes in his story. Derek began to physically sweat. Then he got emotional, broke down, and confessed 
telling them that Diana had paid them. Derek was arrested. Next to be interrogated was Scott, but he was a tough guy and denied everything. After hours of grueling questions and faced with the evidence, he too cracked and confessed. He told the same story as Derek, except that it wasn't Diana who'd paid them. It was Roy. Investigators returned to Dover and interviewed Diana again. They told her she needed to tell the truth. But she resisted and said she wanted to go home. Investigators didn't have enough to hold her and she was able to leave. Then investigators interviewed Roy. He wasn't surprised and told them that Diana had approached him in January about having Derek killed. And it was only afterwards that he discovered his son Derek and his friend Scott had carried it out. Roy cut a deal with the prosecutors and agreed to wear a listening device and have one placed in his vehicle. Then he met Diana at a shopping mall. But when she got into the vehicle, she didn't say a word about David. Instead, she whipped out a mirror and a dry erase marker and started writing. She knew police could be listening. Later, investigators tapped Roy's phone and he tried to get Diana to incriminate herself, but she wouldn't. Without more evidence, police couldn't arrest Diana. But feeling the heat, she moved her and her girls to Texas. In April 2009, Roy was charged with the conspiracy to murder. He made arrangements to turn himself in. But he just couldn't do it. Roy rented a motel room and took his own life. A month later, a Dover detective tracked Diana down in Texas and knocked on her door, telling her that he had an update on David's case and it piqued her interest and she let him in. Sitting at the kitchen table, he told her that Roy was gone. Diana was quick to blame Roy, that it was his idea to kill David and that he tried to frame her for it. A year after David's murder, investigators had gathered enough evidence and returned to Texas and arrested Diana. She was charged as an accomplice to first-degree murder, conspiracy, theft by unauthorized taking, and theft by misapplication of property. In February 2011, Diana went on trial. Her defense lawyer blamed Roy. The prosecution put Dr. Meredith on the stand, and a forensic accountant testified to where the stolen money had gone. Diana's two daughters took the stand to say that David had never abused them, and Derek and Scott, who had pled guilty to murder, testified against her. Diana did not testify. The trial lasted four weeks. The Foster's Daily Democrat reported that the jury stood before the judge with a guilty verdict on all four counts. 43-year-old Diana stood quiet and still. 
She was sentenced to life. Derek is serving 20 years and Scott 33 years. Diana appealed her conviction. It was denied. Diana was ordered to pay for David's funeral and $350,000 in restitution to Dr. Meredith. David's previous girlfriend and three children were awarded $1.8 million in a lawsuit against her. It is unlikely they will ever see a dime. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Henry Lombard and Hubert Hartley. Thanksgiving morning was crisp, the leaves dampened by the rain, perfect for hunting. Henry and Hubert set out with their rifles, but they weren't just hunting deer. Their prey slept soundly as their rifle bolt slid forward. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.